All right, well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you could join us for our Sunday worship. If this is your first time here. My name is Thomas. I am one of the pastors at this church. And uh, again, two weeks from now, we do uh, have a prayer meeting that we want to have together as a church. It's not something that uh, we're saying that all of us as a church, as members, we have to go. But it's more of an invitation to our church because as we begin this new season, uh, we don't want to just regather and we don't want to just uh, praise our God, but we want to be a church that's prayerful, especially during significant times. And so we do invite you to come in two weeks after service where we're going to come together and we're going to have a time where we can pray as a congregation. And so uh, this, if you've been joining us these past weeks, though, you know that we've been going through a sermon series in light of this new season that our church is going through in the book of Nehemiah. And so today we're continuing that series. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles, it should be on the screen as well. But I encourage you to turn to, your, to the passage in your Bible so that we can keep referring back to it. And we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 all the way to verse 13. So Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1. To 13. So this is um, after the opposition against the building of the wall takes place. We see in chapter 5, starting in verse 1, something new that takes place amongst the people. And verse 1, I'll read out loud if you can follow along. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there are those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our house to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been slaves. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards." I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel of myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. This is the reading of God's word. So oftentimes... People will come up to me and they'll say, hey, have you seen this recent television show that came out on Netflix or that came out on Hulu? You should check out this TV show. And oftentimes when people tell me to check out a TV show, I will take their recommendation. I will check out the TV show for one episode. For one episode. I promise anybody, if you recommend a show, I'll pay attention to that first episode at the very least. And here's why. Because that first episode will often tell me exactly what I need to know about this show. 
This isn't always the case, but often the case, the first episode is the most important episode because the first episode is what's often called the pilot. The pilot of a TV show is meant to be that episode that gets producers to invest in the show, that gets audience to pay attention and commit to the show. And so for me, if the first episode is not good, this series is not going to be worth it to me. Because the pilot, that's just how TV works. You bank on the pilot. I also know if I keep watching the show, I expect to be disappointed at the end of the season. Because every series, it always begins with a pilot, and the first season always ends with a cliffhanger. It's always going to be frustrating. Where the show is going to end, where you are curious what's going to happen, and they say, tune in, 2022. And it's like, oh my gosh, so frustrating. Because that's how TV works. It starts with the pilot. Season one ends with a season finale cliffhanger. But there's a third thing that a TV show has that I'm not sure if you guys might have heard of before, where every, every TV show, every season, there's always one episode, and they call it the bottle episode. I'm not sure if you ever heard of that term before, but there's something called the bottle episode. A bottle episode is an episode that's different from every other episode of the TV series. You can make a guess that this is a bottle episode that you're watching if you notice this episode has a random change of pace. If it's action-filled, it's really slow. Or if it's really slow, one episode's crazy action. Or if it's in one location. Some TV shows, the whole episode is just in one space. Or if it's focusing on just one character or three characters or the main cast only. Something's different about this episode from everything else. And if that's the case, that's usually known as the bottle episode. Now the reason why TV shows will have a bottle episode in every season is usually for one or two reasons. Number one is for practical reasons. They're over budget. They went way over budget, and in order to save money and to save the show, they have to cut down on the cost. So one location, less actors to pay, a little bit different, no special effects, and that's one reason why the bottle episode exists. In fact, that's probably the reason why the bottle episode first came about. But it started to become a second reason why the bottle episode's happening. Directors and artists, they begin to actually purposely have a bottle episode, not for practical reasons, but for storytelling reasons. They realize that when you interrupt the flow of the series, people pay attention. People go, wait, what's different about this episode? And oftentimes in the bottle episode, the most important exposition happens, the most important plot devices take place, because it's their way of saying that this episode, it's really important. It's, it's their opportunity to stand out and to get the, reader, the viewer's attention. And so it's for storytelling reasons. In Nehemiah chapter 5, the chapter we just read, this is the book of Nehemiah's version of the bottle episode. It's different than every other chapter that we've read so far. Because if you've been trekking with us, the book of Nehemiah, throughout the entire story, the focus has been on one thing, rebuilding the wall. It's all about the wall being rebuilt. Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah feels this burden to build the wall. Nehemiah chapter 2, he actually goes and plans to build the wall. Nehemiah chapter 3, they start to build the wall together. Nehemiah chapter 4, opposition against the wall. But here in chapter 5 of the book of Nehemiah is the first time that we read a chapter where the wall is not mentioned once. They don't mention the wall. The focus instead shifts from the wall to the life of the people. And the reason why is because Nehemiah is trying to make a point. This whole thing that they're doing right now, it's not about just the wall. God is not just bringing them to build the wall. That's not the point, even though that's part of the project. 
God is not gathering them together to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He's gathering them to rebuild a nation. He wants to rebuild a people. It's the people that matters. As important as the quality of the wall is, what's even more important is the quality of the people who live in the walls. That's what matters the most. As Paige Brown, who I'll be quoting several times, says, quote, God is using Nehemiah to build his walls, yes. But more importantly, to build his people because they are his permanent possession. Jerusalem is a birth canal. It's an incubator. It will pass away. But the people, they are the permanent possession. Now, if this is the case, if God cares more about the people than the wall, he cares more about the quality of the people than the quality of the wall, what type of people is God looking to build up? What are the qualities that he's looking for amongst his people? Oftentimes when people think of a thriving nation or a nation that's doing well, especially back then, you think of a powerful army. You think of powerful kings with a lot of wealth. You think of large temples and kingdoms and infrastructures. But this God is different. God says when he's reestablishing this nation, the quality that he's looking for in this nation amongst this people is a care for mercy and for justice. Do these people care about mercy and justice? If they want to experience not just walls, but God's presence in their life as a nation, if they want to experience renewal, which is what the whole book is about, the renewal of God's presence amongst the people, they need to care about the things God cares about. And God cares about the needs of their neighbors, mercy, justice. Now, what type of people is God looking to build up today? I would argue that for many of us, when we think of a church that's thriving, that's doing well, we think obviously of the church size, we take pictures going, look how many people came today. We look at the quality of the children's program, God must be doing something. We see a beautiful building, we think God might be doing something that's here. But we have to realize that this God, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. One of those important things that therefore God is looking for in his church is something similar that he's looking for the people in Nehemiah. Do we care about mercy? and justice? Do we have a love for our neighbor? As we rebuild our church, as we want to experience renewal in our community, is the love for neighbor there at all? Is the desire for mercy and justice something that's on our periphery? And so today what we're going to have is uh, our version of uh, not just a bottle passage, but a bottle sermon. This is the bottle sermon of the series, where I want to share not just how the book of Nehemiah applies to our individual lives, which I hope it does, but even how it applies to the life of our entire church. You see, most churches, uh, if you, especially if you grew up in a church, most churches are committed to something called the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. And most people, if you grew up in the church, you go, oh yeah, that's what a church should do. Be committed to evangelism, so overseas missions. I want to be at a church like that. But realize that churches, it's not just the Great Commission, although it's never less than that. There is a great commission, but there's also something called the great command, which is we are called to love our neighbor. And there's also something called the great requirement, which is to love justice, seek mercy. And is that something that we see at a church that's what should be there? The love for justice, the love for mercy, the love for neighbor, along with the desire to make disciples. And we don't see this often. We don't see it emphasized often in a church, especially one in the suburbs, especially one that tends to be filled with more Asian-Americans, minorities. It tends to be just make disciples, evangelize, grow in Bible study. 
But do we care about the people around us? Do we care about the city? Do we care about those who are in need? And it's hard. The reason why we don't see it often is because it's hard. Why is it so challenging to love our neighbors as a church? What should motivate us to love in this way? What does it look like for a church to practice mercy and justice? And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about three things. Number one, the neglect of mercy and justice, why it happens. Number two, the motivation for mercy and justice, why we need to do it though. And number three, the practice of mercy and justice. How should our church do it? And so again, today might feel a little bit different than other messages. I'll be talking not just to you, but about our whole church. And so if this is your first time here, I hope this will give you a glimpse of what our church is about and where our church is headed. And so those are three things we're going to be talking about. Number one, let's talk about the first one, the neglect of mercy and justice. So this bottle episode of Nehemiah 5, the way it begins is Nehemiah, he says that he heard a great outcry from the people. Look again what it says in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now this word outcry, it stands out because this is the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis chapter 18 verse 21 when God heard the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. This place filled with brokenness. He heard an outcry from the people. It's the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 when Israel was enslaved under Egypt oppression. They were literally outcrying to God. So when Nehemiah says he heard a great outcry here right now as they're rebuilding the city, what Nehemiah is saying is there's a great injustice going on right now. Except it's not the hands of the Egyptians, it's not Sodom and Gomorrah, it's in Jerusalem. It's amongst the people of God that are committing this injustice. Now why was there an outcry? What was taking place while they're rebuilding the walls that was so wrong? Two things we see, at least two things. Number one... The people were struggling to buy food. They were starving and nobody really cared. Nobody cared. Look what it says in verses 2 to 4. For there are those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There are also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there are those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So here's what's going on. They need food, but here's the problem. They live under Persian rule. And while the Babylonians and the, the Babylonians would oftentimes exile people and slave them that way, the Persians, they're, they're kind of sneaky oppressors. They're like, you could go back to your land. You could do your own thing. You could own property even though you're under a rule. You just have to pay taxes. You got to pay us taxes. So they were heavily taxed, a lot more than they're used to. Plus we know that there was a famine that was going on and the famine in the land meant less grain. And plus... When there's less grain, a lot of money that they get charged is taken out from the Persians. When they went to buy grain, they didn't have enough money, so they go to their Jewish brothers going, can we borrow money? And they said, sure, you owe me 20% on top of that, though. Why should I just let you borrow money? And so that was the, what was taking place. And so they couldn't afford to eat, and it got so bad that here's the second problem that took place. People were being forced to sell their children into slavery to pay off their debts. Look what it says in verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now, uh, this word slavery, obviously it's a kind of a trigger word. It's really different than back then than it is now. Uh, the way this worked was this was something legal, where if you were in debt back then, and you could not pay off your loans or your interest, you would be stuck working 
forever as a slave laborer to the person you owe money to until you pay it back. It's like grad school. You just cannot get out of your job because you have to pay back that loan. You're stuck. You're kind of an ancient slave in this case. That's kind of what's going on. So perfectly legal, still not good though. Still not good. People were slaving away and selling their children to pay off their debt. And so when Nehemiah, when he heard that this is going on, outside the walls, amongst his people, Nehemiah does not go, oh man, that's unfortunate. What should we do? Nor does he go, hmm, that's a concern. I should think about that. In verse 6, Nehemiah says he's not just angry, very angry. Look what again it says. Verses 6 to 7, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard that outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Now, why is Nehemiah so angry here? The people aren't doing anything legally wrong. There's nothing wrong with charging interest. I mean, it's at risk for you to loan money to somebody who needs your money without some type of, you know, reward. Why would you even go through that trouble? There's even nothing wrong with putting yourself in, under slave labor at that time. There's nothing legally wrong here. So what was Nehemiah so upset about? And here's why. They were doing all this, charging interest, allowing slavery to happen, while the people were struggling. It was while they were poor. And that's the problem that Nehemiah has. And we notice because in Leviticus chapter 25, and Nehemiah, he's very well versed in the Old Testament, it talks about this very thing, about interest and about slavery. And it says this in chapter 25, verse 35. It says, this is the Mosaic law. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, take no interest from him or profit. If your brother becomes poor besides you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. In other words, it's not saying no, no interest, don't do that. It's not saying that. It's saying if they're poor... If they're struggling and they need money and you still say, hey, with interest only, that's the problem. That's the problem that's there. Because they're not caring about the needs of the people. And so here's the situation that's taking place in Nehemiah. You have people who came to Jerusalem to worship God, built the temple to worship God. They're rebuilding the wall to protect the people of God. All while people are suffering around them with, for lack of food. And they're saying, the only way we're going to help you is if you give us interest. So they're carrying everything about what's happening inside the wall. But outside the wall, it's business as usual. You need to borrow money for food? Okay, but you better pay me back with 20% on top of that. Oh, there's a famine in the land? Ah, that sucks. Well, your rent's due at the end of the month. Don't forget. Something's not right. Something's not right when the God's people are rebuilding God's city but they are ignoring the needs of their neighbors outside of that city. Something's wrong there. Because the people in God's city, they're not meant to just think of themselves inside the wall. They're meant to think of those outside of it too. The same problem we face today. Christians, we often think as long as we worship on Sundays in our temple, which is the church, as long as we are building our wall, which is serving in different ministries, we're spiritually okay. And when we think about the poor, we think about, oh, yeah, we know there's people who are in need. It's something that's kind of optional for us. Something that's like, oh, if I have time, or maybe, yeah, one day, if I, if I have, well, you know, when, once my kids get older, or once I get my jobs ready, or, you know, when, when that happens, maybe I'll do it. But what we learned today is something's not right. Something's not right if we, as God's people, we don't pay attention to the needs of our neighbors. 
you're disengaging from them because we often focus on ourselves. And what this passage is telling us is this isn't something that the church should do. There's a book that I enjoy a lot. It's called, um, you should read it if you live in the suburbs. It's called Death by Suburb. His name is David Goetz. And he's a Christian. And he lives in the suburbs. And he kind of observes, like, man, suburban Christians, which a lot of you guys are, uh, we're different. Uh, we, we practice our spirituality in a, in a different way. And he says, you know, Christians who uh, are, live in the suburbs, and especially those of us who never really think about, like, our neighbors or think about, like, the poor, uh, he has a term for that. He calls people like that shirkers. Shirkers. Now, what a shirker is, it's a, it's a, it's a type of animal. And let me kind of explain. Um, during uh, the fall, at least where he's living, I'm not sure this is true universally, uh, there's a mating season that takes place where these elks, they, will, they have mating seasons, and these elks, they will use their antlers to battle one another to find the right mate, and they'll spawn their offspring and get ready for the next generation. And so that's why you know, these bucks are always fighting, they're using their antlers and so forth, and those are, that's normal. But there's a certain type of elk that you might have seen pictures of where their antlers, they're not that small. I'm not sure there's a picture up there. There's a, that's a normal elk, okay? Their horns are like this, you battle. But there's certain types of elk that look a little bit different. Show the next picture. This one, okay? Those are called shirkers. Their, elk, their antlers are huge, ginormous. And you would think they could own anybody if it gets that big. Mm -mm. They don't own anybody. You know why? They don't fight. They just watch everybody. They never mate. They're called shirkers because they're shirking their responsibility, their biological responsibility. Instead of using their energy to battle one another, they just sit there and they use all their energy to grow. <laughs> These large antlers that are just growing and growing and growing, never to be used in battle, just to look pretty, just to look nice. And the result is they are not spawning offspring. They are going against their biological code. And what Goetz says is, this is what happens to Christians when we disengage from the needs of others. And we just focus on making sure that we're okay. We have these amazing outliers. Look at my job. Look at my bank account. Look at my Bible study participation. Look at all the ministries I'm involved in. I know I look really silly, but this is what we look like. like this is, we're, we're shirkers. We have these amazing outliers. Part of the Christian community. Sunday experience is amazing. Spiritual knowledge. It's never used to the benefit of others. It's never used to minister to others. It's never used to pour into others. It's only about ourselves. David Goetz, he says, quote about shirkers, he says, the flow of what he calls shirker religion is all one direction towards me or my kids. Shirkers are religious folks who inadvertently disengage from the suffering of the world and who unwittingly collect to themselves every available religious experience the shirker life is full of service activities, mostly to and with other shirkers. Religion tends to be more a program than it is an experience that changes your life. And the more I participate in the programs, the further I remove myself from the deep suffering of the world. What Goetz is saying is this is a suburban religion. There's a ministry that benefits you, you will do it. Benefits your kids, you will do it. To serve others, ah, busy that weekend. You're growing antlers. You're growing the giant antlers. This is what happens in the suburbs. And this is exactly what happened in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is challenging God's people. Are you paying attention to the needs of those around you? Because there's an outcry that's going on. He's challenging them, and I think Nehemiah chapter 5 is challenging us. Because back then, your neighbor back then, what it meant in the old covenant is your fellow Jew, another Israelite. 
But in the New Testament, as God's church, your neighbor is anybody who is in need. The Good Samaritan parable teaches us that. It's not just other Christians. It's not just other people who live and are like you. It is anybody that you encounter who's in need. But the problem is we aren't aware of people in need because we don't pay attention. We're just building our antlers. So here's a quick application. Are you a shirker Christian right now practicing shirker religion? Do you sport large antlers that you just never use? I know COVID has been really challenging for a lot of us where you just kind of help but think about your situation. Some of you lost jobs. Some of you were stuck at home with your kids. Some of you guys kind of struggling with emotional health. Completely get it. But now, a lot of you have new jobs. A lot of you, your kids are going to be out of the house, going to school. A lot of us, things are opening up. What do you plan to do with your free time? What do you plan to do with your resources now? Is it more about building our antlers? Or are we meant to do something more, something different as God's people? And that leads to the second point, the motivation. Why should we do this? Why, what is the motivation to practice mercy and justice? So after Nehemiah, he rebukes the people saying, you're not caring or paying attention to those who are in need. You're only caring about the law and the building and so forth. He tells them why they should care. Notice when Nehemiah says, this is why you should care. He doesn't go, if you keep doing this, the economy is going to collapse. So for the good of the economy, you got you to make sure you care for the needs of people. Nor is it even humanitarian reasons. He doesn't go, hey, people are suffering. Don't you care about the people? All true, all motivations that's reasonable. But Nehemiah, he points to something else. In verse 9, look what Nehemiah says. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations? Nehemiah brings up two things. You know why you got to care for them? There's two things. The fear of God, the reputation of God. The fear and the reputation. The fear of God, let's talk about that first. Nehemiah says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? What does that mean? Larry King, uh, he, he uh, passed away, but he used, I always watch his interviews that he does with different celebrities. And one interview he did was with this actor named Walt, uh, Walton Goggins. That's his name. And uh, with Walton Goggins, you don't know that name probably, but you might have seen his face because he collaborated a lot with different uh, directors, Steven Spielberg and so forth, Martin Scorsese. Uh, but the one he collaborated the most with is Quentin Tarantino. And uh, uh, Larry King asked him, what's it like working on a Tarantino set? And Goggins, he said, oh, it's, it's dreadful. And Larry King's like, what do you mean? He's like, everybody's scared on set. And this is during, like, Me Too. He's like, what happened? He's like, no, no, it's not like that. <laughs> it's not like, you know, Tarantino is, like, abusive or, or anything like that. Uh, the reason why we're so scared is because Tarantino, he's so amazing. Uh, Tarantino, when he makes movies, it's not about the money. He could care less about the money. Tarantino, when he makes movies, he makes movies to make great movies. It's all about cinema for him. And therefore, he has everybody, like, he makes sure everybody knows the details, what the movie's about, the vision, the direction. He's really working hard about it. And so all the actors who come on set who've been invited to join him in this project, they all recognize that there's something different about this movie set. And they all want to do really well and make the best movie that Tarantino wants to make. And so they're all filled with this kind of fear, but a fear to want to please and do well in Tarantino's movie set. That's the fear that, he, that Goggins is talking about, and that's the fear that Nehemiah is talking about. This is what Nehemiah says should motivate God's people to serve and care for the poor, to practice mercy and justice. You worship a God who, he says many things about himself, but one thing you just cannot ignore is God cares about something. The oppressed, the poor, 
those who are less fortunate. It's not a random verse in the Leviticus that he says that once. This is like a theme throughout the entire Old Testament. For example, Psalm chapter 10, verse 17 to 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of afflicted to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Psalm 68, verse 5. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, father of the fatherless, protector of widows. Psalm 146, verse 9, the Lord protects to the strangers, he supports the fatherless and the widow. And that's just a sample of over and over again who this God is. In fact, the reason why Israel was exiled in the first place, it wasn't because they failed to worship God. It wasn't because they failed to give sacrifices. It's because they didn't practice mercy. They didn't practice justice. And that's why God exiled them. Because God will not dwell with the people who does not care about the things God cares about. And he cares about the oppressed, the poor. My wife, she has a cousin that I think is a great catch. Uh, she's a great girl, great catch. And I always, once in a while, tell my wife, hey, what about this guy? What about this guy at our church? I think this guy's a good guy. What about this guy at our church? And I just bring up different people. Um, and the problem, though, is if any of you are interested, here's, here's the thing. If you're interested in meeting this girl, who I think is a great catch, there is one non-negotiable she has. You have to like kids. You have to like kids. Not just any kids. You have to like orphans. You have to like orphans. Because from my past conversations with her, her plan is to build an orphanage. And she's not one of those, you know, recent grads who's, I want to build an orphanage, and you never hear about that again. Like, she still talks about it to this day. Like, her whole career is planned to build an orphanage. That's, like, she's serious about this. And so if anybody wants to be life partners with this girl, text me, let me know, and just know the first thing I'll ask you is, do you care about orphans? Because this girl, she will not be with you or date you or never marry you unless you care about orphanages. This is our God. This is a non-negotiable. You can't be in a relationship with God and go, ah, but that stuff, uh, other people will do it. Non-negotiable with God. People got exiled in the Old Testament because they didn't care about this. Because God wants to dwell with the people who care about the things that God cares about, as we said in Nehemiah chapter 1. And he really cares about the oppressed. He really cares about the poor. And that leads to the second point, this reputation of God. Another reason why Nehemiah says you got to care for them, your neighbors who are in need, is not just because fear of God, but do you not know the reputation of God is at stake? That's why he says you have to prevent the taunts of the nations. What kind of nation we will be if we don't care about this? And the reason why this is so important is because this God is supposed to be different than every other God. And here's how he's supposed to be different. Back then, in Nehemiah's time, everybody believed. And this is just like, like a non, like this is a universal thing. The gods favored kings, noblemen, and rich people. The elite of society. That's how the gods worked. That's why the gods blessed them. And that's who they favor. Because kings could influence people to worship that god. Rich people, they could build temples and architects to honor that god. Noblemen, they could offer sacrifices that are great for that god. These are the types of gods that everyone's just used to. Of course the gods would favor the rich, the elite. But this is what makes the biblical god so different. The biblical god, he is a god who does not identify with the elite or the rich or the noble. With the poor, the widow. The oppressed. He is the defender of widows. He fights for the fatherless. That's what makes Yahweh so different. And that's why he makes sure that as my people, would you also care for the widows, the fatherless, 
the neighbors who are struggling. Because this will communicate to the people that this is the God you worship. This is the God you care about. If everyone's just rich and elite and they ignore all the poor and worshiping Yahweh, it's a misrepresentation of who God is. But when you care about those who you have no business caring about, no business associating with, why would you do that? You could point to something. Because our God cares. And throughout church history, that's what happened. The early church, they were not known for their politics or being Republicans or, or Democrats. The early church was not known for practicing partisan or being, having large buildings or mega churches. That's not what they were known for. They weren't known for their worship music. They weren't known for celebrity pastors. The early church, what they were most known for was their care for the poor. That's what they were famous for. That's how they actually grew in the Roman Empire. And not just their poor, the poor outside of the church. That's how they became powerful. And by powerful, not in an oppressive way, but influential. Where people are like, what is this religion? Where you guys are caring for people who we have no business caring for. You see, as Christians, when we hear messages like this, like, hey, love your neighbors, or mercy, justice, a lot of us, and I've been in your shoes before, we think, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah, that, that is something that people should do. I'm glad somebody cares about the poor. Okay, well, you know, good thing we have that happening in our church. Hope people get, they, they take care of that. Don't we have a mercy ministry? I'm so glad we have mercy ministry. Hope that goes well. Let me know how I can pray for it. In other words, you know what, Chris, uh, this analogy I kind of think of, when we think of mercy, this is the picture. We have a plate, there's a thing, a dish called Christianity, and there's a sauce. There's like three sauces. There's a children's ministry, there's a overseas missions, and there's mercy. We have, a, we have a piece of our, our dish and we go, do I want to dip it in mercy? Ah, I'll try it. Ooh, it's kind of weird. I'll try that maybe next year. Maybe I'll try it again next year. And that's how we approach it. That's how we approach mercy. It's something optional. It's something that if we like the sauce, maybe we'll try it. If you like the sauce, good for you. But for me, ah, I think I like this sauce better. What I would argue what Christianity actually is, it's not a, mercy is not a sauce that you dip in. The sauce is poured all over your faith. The dish, if you don't like teriyaki, sorry, this is a teriyaki meal. It's teriyaki sauce that's meant to be poured all over the Christian faith. That's what it is. This is how we're supposed to approach it. The love for neighbor and mercy, it is not an additional, maybe if I have time, type of optional thing. It is the essence, part of the essence of what Christianity is. Because who is the ultimate person who was oppressed and who was in need? Who is the ultimate person that needed help, that needed mercy? The gospel tells us it was us. Jesus Christ looked down upon us. Those of us who, were, who had nothing to offer him. Who also, we had nothing to give to him. And yet he laid down his riches and gave to us. Sacrificed for us. And that's why, if that is true in your heart, where you go, wait, it's not just about because I care about the poor, I care about people in need, but it's the fear of God. That God has been merciful to me he cares about this. He's done this for me. That's going to be what drives you. It's not this natural affinity to that sauce. It's understanding this is the essence of the Christian faith. And that's what's going to drive you to do a lot of things that you may not naturally want to do. Including loving your neighbors, practicing mercy, practicing justice. I like what Paige Brown, she's an author again who I quoted earlier. She says this about the fear of God. It is not the fear of God unless we at various times are motivated to do what we would never do otherwise. I get it into my mind that people who are really about God's business, they just naturally love it, right? But did Noah like animals? Did Moses like camping? Did Ruth like gleaning? 
Did Daniel like living abroad? Did John the Baptist like confrontation? Did Paul like prison? Did Nehemiah like construction? These people did not love their assignments. They feared the Lord. And those were the assignments he gave them. That's the motivation. Not the love for the thing, the fear of the Lord. In other words, if we truly fear the Lord, if you truly fear the Lord, you care about what God cares about, you want to please and make the Lord blessed, you will care about mercy. You will care about justice. Because God cares about mercy. God cares about justice. I regularly tell this to people. I say, wouldn't it be great if strangers right now, they hear music playing in, in one of our high school, and a person's jogging by with another person going, what's that? And they go, oh, some church meets there. There are all these Asians just kind of there. See this invasion that happens like once a Sunday. Uh, and it's like, oh, it's, what, what do they do there? Like, oh, there's some church and uh, we, I don't really like what they do. I don't even believe what they do, but I'm glad they're here. I'm glad this people meets here because they do a lot of good here in the city. Wouldn't that be awesome if our church was known to be a place like that, a community that practices that? How can we do that where mercy, it's not just this sentimental thing that we hear once in a while, but something could actually be demonstrated through our community. And that leads to the last point, the practice of mercy and justice. So in Nehemiah, after Nehemiah rebukes the people and tells them to walk in the fear of God, he gives them specific instructions of what that looks like. Verses 11 and 13, look what he says. He goes to them, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. In other words, they didn't just hear a message going, thanks, Nehemiah, for that message. Well, back to uh, taking my loans and my interest and so forth. No, they all, they didn't just pay lip service. They all acted right after Nehemiah responded. They went and they refunded the interest that they took from the people. They returned the deeds back from the land that they, dis that they dispossessed. They released the Israelite slaves that they had once enslaved. And this all came at a great cost. It came at a great sacrifice. It wasn't just a message, but it happened through action, this change. And just know at our church, that's going to be what I hope happens as well. Uh, there's not going to be just, hey, once a year, let's talk about mercy. I hope you do it. Uh, part of our vision as a church is we want to be a faithful presence in the city. Which, again, it's a very unusual thing for uh, especially suburban churches to consider. Uh, where we're a church that does not just care about what happens inside our walls, but happens outside the walls of our church. I hope our church, we could be not just committed to the Great Commission, although I hope that's something that's always primary, but are we also going to be committed to the Great Command and the Great Requirement? In other words, we hope mercy could be part of not just a side thing at our church, not just a sauce, but it's the DNA part of every aspect of our church. Our community groups, you're part of a community group, expect mercy to be a part of that. So we think that's important. Mercy is not just something at a side gig, but something our entire church, we hope that we could do. Our college ministry, I was talking to our director, Shim, I said, we should cancel Food Fridays. And by canceling, not canceling where you don't meet, let's, let's serve the city. Let's serve the city. Even our education, I've been talking to our director, Tim. I'm like, Tim, how do we get the kids to serve the city? He's like, what do you mean? And so we're just like talking, but it's like, how do we get our kids to care? Is there a way to get them to care? Our entire congregation is something that we can do. And I know it's difficult. There's so many questions. That's why you see a lot of churches not do this. 
so many logistical questions, so many philosophical questions, so many theological questions. Where do we practice mercy? Some of you live in LA, some of you live in Torrance, some of you live in Irvine, some of you live in Fullerton. So like, where do you want us to do this? Uh, how do we do this? Because it's super hard. It's, you know, we're tired, we're busy people. Uh, and what's the point? Are we even making change? You know, so what's the goal that what we're doing? And so in light of that, I just want to talk, and who knows how this is going to turn out. I just want to talk off the cuff. Uh, and address five different things when it comes to mercy. There's a lot more organization, by the way. I've been talking to our mercy team, and we have a plan of what we want to do as a church. But off the cuff, let me just kind of like spit out a couple of things that uh, for our church, what do we think when it comes to the topic of justice and mercy? Here's number one that I want to throw out there. I would argue our church should practice mercy wherever we gather to worship. Some of you live in L.A., some of you live in Irvine. Where do we gather to worship? We're in Buena Park right now. We're in Buena Park. And right now, we're using facilities in Buena Park. We're taking resources from Buena Park. And we're known as a church that meets here to worship a God in Buena Park. How would it be, though, if we could be a church that doesn't just take resources from Buena Park, we give resources? We're not just using the city, we're offering something to the city. And we don't just have people who will gather if it's a fellowship or if it's a Sunday worship. But we have a people who will gather if we're called to serve the people here. How would that do, what kind of impact would that make in the city that we are worshiping in? What kind of reputation would our God have if there's a people who regularly gather and they care about the place that they are gathering? When Israel was exiled to Babylon, God didn't say, wait till you return to Jerusalem and then you could start doing mercy and doing all these good things. He says, hey, you're only going to be there for 70 years, but love the city. Even if it's temporary, love the city. Because it's not about the results primarily, it's about the reputation of God in that city. Who is this God that you worship? Do they recognize that he cares about the city that you're in? Here's the second thing. Our church, we should practice mercy, not simply uh, in our minds, but we should see the practice of mercy as a way to grow conviction for mercy. The practice of it leads to conviction. I was talking to our church staff and we were all saying, hey, how can we be a church that really cares about mercy? And we did the traditional stuff. You know, we should have a Bible study on this. We should preach sermons on this. We should do a series on this. Helpful, true, but I'm realizing more and more, you just got to do it sometimes. You just got to do it because that's how oftentimes convictions are built. My son has no idea what gelato is right now. No idea. And when I, if I told my son, hey, you know what gelato is? It's like ice cream, but more realistic. <laughs> like if I explained it that way, he won't really understand what I'm talking about. And what I have to do sometimes is just try it. And when he tries it, then he builds the palate for gelato. Our church, oftentimes, I think we don't have a palate to serve our neighbors because we've never tried it. We've never done it. We just know it conceptually, but you're not going to really see the needs for people unless you're actually there with them. Here's our third thing I think our church needs to do. Our church needs to be wise and develop a long-term game plan to effectively practice mercy. Here's the worst thing that happens with churches when they want to practice mercy. We're here in the city, oh, I don't know what to do, let's just do a soup kitchen. Because that's a merciful thing, right? And we just serve a soup kitchen. And you know what happens? We feel good. Like, we're merciful. Are you helping the city? Does the city really need that? The reason why a lot of churches do that is because it's easy. You don't have to research. You don't have to pray. You just do the merciful thing to make us feel like we're merciful. But a church that really cares, hey, we actually want to bring change to the city. We want to bring a renewal to the city. We want our church to be a means to help transform the city. They pay attention to what does the city need? What does the city need? That takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of exposure to pay attention. 
It, I was talking to our team. We should talk to the city council. What do you guys need? It takes a lot of, hey, what do we have? What kind of skills do we have at our church? It's a long-term plan. It's not this conviction-based thing only, although conviction matters, but how are we going to go about it wisely? Another thing, too, a fourth thing is our church, we need to see, again, the goal is not the results. God will take care of the results. But the goal is to shape us to be aware that this is what God cares for, to shape our awareness. David, Go David Goetz, the guy who wrote The Death of Suburbs, he was saying, like, you know, he was convicted not to be a, a shirker. So he started serving at a soup kitchen, and he started doing, serving the homeless. And he was so discouraged. He was, I did this for, like, six months. Same people every single week. Same people who's getting come to the soup kitchen. And he was like, what's the point? What's the point of serving if nobody is changing? And then he realized, you know, it's good. It's good I'm here. It's good I come. Even if it's like once a week or once a month, it's good to see this. And this is what he says. This is his, his quote. He says, my life, he realizes, it's so sheltered with material blessings and psychologically healthy friends that this soup kitchen thing, it's better than nothing. Because at least once a month, I'm forced to think about those who genuinely suffer. As I progress spiritually, I should feel less need to do only that which promotes myself and the extension of myself. My kids, for example, my life becomes a reverse flow. In other words, this is a discipline that just helps them to know that this spiritual life, this Christian life, it's not just about me. It's about using these antlers to help and minister to other people. And this moment of exposure, it helps them to remember that as well. And lastly, number five, the five just kind of random take. Our church needs to do this. We need to practice mercy in connection with the mission of God. Uh, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We all, a lot of us know this passage. Jesus goes and he goes, before I go, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he goes. Now, those aren't random cities. Those aren't random regions. Jesus has a geographical logic to it. They were in Jerusalem when he said that. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, which is a neighboring city, Samaria, which is even a neighboring city, and then the ends of the earth. Now, there are some churches, all they care about is Judea, Samaria, and that's it. And that's not good, because there's people who need the gospel. There are some churches, though, we need to go to the ends of the earth. Send me, I want to preach the gospel. There are people who are in need, and we don't care about Judea or Samaria. Problems with both. Problems with both. For us as a church, I know we have people who care about the ends of the earth. I do too. Pastor Sam does too. A lot of us care about the ends of the earth. It's discouraging to see how much we care about Judea and Samaria. How can you go to the ends of the earth and say you genuinely care when the people right here, yeah, no big deal. I understand the need disparity. I understand all that. But the command and the commission that God's church has to grow to be a faithful church is everywhere you go, everywhere you gather, Faithful witness to the gospel. The ends of the earth is needed, but right now, right here, do we care about Judea? Do we care about Samaria? Do we care about the needs that are here too? Once that happens, oh, I, th I just can't help but think there's going to be doors that open to the ends of the earth. It's just going to happen. I am confident in it. But it's going to be weird if all we care about is this but not here. And so for our church, this is what we care about. This is something that we hope is part of DNA. If you want to be part of a church and you don't care about justice, you don't care about mercy, you're going to have a hard time at our church going forward. Because for our church, this is something that's there. It's not the only thing we do. It's the primary thing we do. And I think because this is God's heart. God cares about those who are in need. God cares that his people care about the needs of his neighbors. 
And so, lastly, what can we do in light of these things? Let me just offer a quick application. In order for us to practice this well, it starts with us. Start small. Before we do anything collectively, what's something you do individually? Do you have people who are in need around you? A mom, a dad, a sibling, a friend, a literal neighbor? How can you meet their needs? Let's build up those spiritual muscles. Here's a second application. Participate. We plan to do things this upcoming year. It's not going to be anything crazy, but we plan to do things. Participate. Join us as we have these opportunities. Experience the reverse flow of the Christian life, as David Goet says. And lastly, would you pray? Pray that God would awaken our church's hearts. Pray that God would awaken your heart to care about the things that God cares about, the needs of our neighbors, the city of Buena Park, the places, the people we encounter who need help, who need the church, who need a savior. Let's all pray together. If I could just invite us to pray for a moment. Wherever you're at, it might be a different thing to pray for. For some of us, it might be you know somebody who's in need. You know somebody who might need care and extra help, even if it's just hands and feet that you need help with. Maybe we could lift them up in prayer at this moment. Or for some of us, it might be we already have a heart for this. We pray that God would use our church to be a presence in this city and to go about where people would know that at this church, we don't just worship a God, but they can know who this God is, who cares about those who are in need. Or for some of us, we might just be apathetic, where we go, you know, I know I should care for this, but I just don't right now. It's okay. Be honest with the Lord. And bring your hearts to the Lord, asking the Lord, if this is something that God cares about, help us to have a heart for this as well. So let's take a minute just praying on our own, and then I'll close this all together. So let's take a moment to pray.